Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to episode 2.15 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, with additional support from Black Diamond Peeps, Live, Ski, Repeat, and 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. All right, all right. My apologies for getting this one out a little late. Things have gotten a bit busy for me as of lately while the dirt has been perfect and we are in the midst of prime cascade volcano season. I'm honored to be guiding on Mount Shasta, climbing and skiing my way into the summer. If you're looking for a good time, check out www.shastamountainguides.com to book your adventure. Tell them I sent you. Thanks to all of you who have purchased some podcast swag. The last couple months, we have been donating all of our proceeds to protect our winters. I'll be matching those proceeds to double our donation to this great organization. Check them out at www.protectourwinners.org. If you missed the boat on that and still want some awesome swag, a hat, stickers, or a can koozie, check out our store at www.theavalanchehour.com. More than buying swag, tell a friend, family member, or coworker about this podcast. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps. Today's episode highlights an interview with my good friend Hans Yelda. We all love skiing and riding in the snow, but when I think about people that hold the most stoked to ski, I think Hans is on the top of that list. Hans has been working within the snow and avalanche arena for over 20 years, working as a ski patroller, backcountry forecaster, and ski guide. He has extensive experience conducting avalanche mitigation work with a myriad of explosive types. He's also very involved in the avalanche rescue dog program at Snow Base in Utah where he is the assistant snow safety director. I caught up with Hans this fall and we threw a few whiskeys back as he recalls his career as an avalanche worker all over the world. He has a multitude of stories of working in many different snow climates and many different operations. Crack a cold 10 barrel beer, relax, and enjoy our chat with Hans. State your name for the record, please. My name is Hans Jürgen Yelda. What do you do, Hans? I'm a ski patroller. Nice. Hans and I have worked together guiding. He's a good friend. 
and he has a strong, rich history of, of ski patrolling and doing snow safety work for ski areas all around the world. Isn't that right, Hans? That's correct. Give us a brief history of, of your career as a snow and avalanche professional. I was uh, lucky enough to start in Colorado. I was going to school in Boulder and uh, ended up working up at Eldora and met some really, really good people. Um, people that like to, to ski hard, have a good time, and uh, introduced me to the backcountry there. And uh, after a few years there, I decided that I wanted to give patrolling a go other than at a small area in Colorado and uh, looked around and traveled around did some research and uh, I thought I was going to end up in Jackson or maybe Tahoe Um, made it to Little Cottonwood Big Cottonwood skied around um, met people, sort of semi-interviewed, but uh, I really didn't know many people in those those locales. I was just sort of pretty psych guy, going out patrolling for a few years, wanting to keep patrolling, and then uh, I heard about Snow Basin, and uh, lucky enough for me, they were going to hire like. 15 to 20 patrollers and triple the terrain and uh, they needed people and they basically told me that if I showed up I'd get a job and uh, I'd heard about Utah and didn't really know anything about Snow Basin so I came up here in the summer or came came up there in the summer and met the patrol director and he drove me around the truck for a day and uh, yeah I was sold so yeah, I've been at Snow Basin now, going on 20 seasons, and uh, been really psyched to be a part of it. The Wasatch has been good to me. And then, uh, in meeting people throughout, um, or in the Wasatch and some friends back in Colorado, I got a line on going to India, and uh, about 10 years ago, went to India for a season. Mm-hmm. I split it with um, two other snow safety guys and went, worked in Gulmarg. And then uh, I also did 11 seasons in New Zealand, working on the North Island. While, while you were patrolling at Snow Basin in the Northern Hemisphere winters? Yep. My first year at Snow Basin, um, they told me that they had an exchange with this little ski area in uh, New Zealand. And I put my hand up and got the, uh, got the job. They said, Hey, yeah, you're in. And I was like, what's better than skiing all year round and working as a patroller. If there's one thing I know about Hans, it's that he loves to ski. (laughs) So Hans, uh, Snow Basin was going through a bit of an expansion right when you got here. What, what did that growth look like for the ski area, and what sort of um, challenges and opportunities did it provide for you as a as a young patroller? 
in opening new terrain? Oh, it was unbelievable. Um, they tripled their terrain. They had two adjacent areas, the strawberry area and the John Paul area. Um, and they put in the newest lifts at the time into that terrain, as well as their old terrain, put in two high-speed gondolas, a high-speed quad, and a mini um, tram, beer can tram, like they have at Big Sky. Mm-hmm. Um, skiing went from about 2,400 vertical um, with two lifts, older triples to, you know, one one ride to the top and basically three lifts that were 23 to 2,500 vert. And, uh, being an expansion terrain, um, the snow safety team at the time had done some research into where we were going and had done, um, due diligence and decided that we needed a lot of avalanchers and, you know, some, better um, techniques to open and control that er- those areas. They had a 75 mil um, that they decommissioned right before they opened that terrain, mm-hmm. and they figured that they could control most everything with um, avalanchers and uh, bomb trams. So how many avalanchers do you guys use uh, these days there? Currently we use six. Uh, at the time, I think there was eight that were used, but right now it's six. And then we've got five Gazex, and I think twelve of our our several of our routes have trams, and I think we have twelve bomb trams that we have. Okay. My first year, it was dry. It was snow up high, and then uh, it snowed a lot. And then it was like, okay, everybody show up. All these people show up that have never patrolled at Snow Basin before, never worked there. And then we're on a big mountain and things were ripping big, three, four feet to ground. Um, and I happened, was lucky enough to go with an older patroller and he took me under his wing. And I just was just blown away how much of the terrain was just on low, lowish angle, you know, like. 35, 36 degrees was just going to ground. Um, and I was, I was just blown away. You know, I, everything I'd heard about Utah was deep snowpack and more stable. And I, I was just seeing everything around me, you know, cracking, going, showing up on ridges and hearing whoops. And uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. And that was, uh, it was tr- it was amazing as an avalanche worker to see all that happening. You know, um, I was lucky enough to go up onto new terrain and one of our patrol, there's four of us, one of the patrollers, um, through his first shot on this new terrain that we were opening or that we were controlling for the first time officially, cause it was a lift there. And I looked at the patrol, the snow safety director, Tom Leonard, and he was like up, against a tree holding onto it. And we were on the flats. I was like, well, he's a snow safety director. I think I'm going to do exactly what he did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that shot went off and we're like, oh yeah, well, yeah, no big deal. And then we get a call from, what are you guys doing up on John Paul? 
JP Faze is ripping. Oh, it's going around the corner. Oh, the patrol shoes are ripping. And uh, that one shot had wrapped around the mountain. It was like a, a crown line that was a kilometer and a half. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was my first, you know, my first storm cycle into working in Utah. So I should say that uh, that Hans is the newly appointed assistant snow safety director at Snow Basin, and you're also a dog handler, right? Yep. You got a dog stash. Yeah, he's at our feet right now. Yeah. What's it like being a dog handler? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 Their their noses are amazing. Um, what they can do, how they can cover terrain, it's it's mine mind-blowing you know just going out with a beacon and trying to find um you know a simulated person we, we we put bags out all the time with beacons to practice you know as that's what most patrols do is you have your your places and your days that you go out and practice and uh when we do dog drills you just think that the dog can cover that area so much quicker and um find people under the snow and you know, there's times that people forget to uh, switch on the beacon and they bear a bag or it's been out for a week or so. And then, you know, just for fun, we'll take the dog and say, hey, you know, go search for that. And they'll go out and usually find it. Once the batteries die or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. we have Reco in there, but sometimes we just want to see how they do it. And, uh, yeah, they're a great companion. They, the guests love them. You know, they're part ambassador for the ski area. And uh, when it's the real deal, which it's unfortunately sometimes is, um, you know, they get out there quickly and they know how to do their job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of training that goes in with that and a pretty rigorous certification process. Um, what, do, what do you guys, how often are you guys training with your dogs at Snow Basin? Well, we abide by the WBR standard, uh, which is the Wasatch Backcountry Rescue. Um, uh, a brief a brief understanding of that is there's a C dog which is a candidate dog a B dog which is an in-house dog and then uh, an A dog which is a call-out dog that can get sent into the backcountry and uh, you know based on snowstorms I'd like to say we train you know every day but uh, limited resources time um, we have a dedicated Friday training that we do and then each handler is sort of responsible for motivating their group around them to do some something else daily if they can, if it's just throwing a sweater out, if it's um, working on ranging. But dedicated, we do one day a week, um, and we try and uh, get all the dog handlers and dogs together, but it's all just based on logistics, you know, based on snow. Mm-hmm. And at Snow Basin, we have three main spots that we have our dogs, but most days we'll have our dogs on either flank of the ski area. And those are the areas where most of our backcountry skiers and our biggest avalanche terrain is. How many other dogs do you guys have at Snow Basin? Uh, we used to have, you know, it's like any program, there's ups and downs. But right now we have four dogs. Um, Two A dogs, um, one B dog, and one C dog. And uh, 
our program is, is evolving and we're hoping to get another dog on soon. So we have four to five dogs on at all times. And the way that it usually works is that after about 10 years, dogs uh, go out in retirement and uh, usually dogs become operational after a year and a half, two years. So there's a lot of pressure from management at some ski areas to open terrain because they're in the business of selling ski tickets and they want to have the most terrain open they want. Um, how do you balance the risk of putting avalanche control teams out there with opening terrain? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody, it depends on the time. It's, it, you know, it's, it's the classic, it depends. You know, early season, um, when you're dealing with a backcountry snowpack in general, out you're a lot more cautious. There's no skier compaction. Yeah, nothing's been compacted. You might have gone out there, and if you're lucky, you've done a little bit of slope testing already. Um, but, yeah, you've got that three-foot storm, and suddenly it's game on. You know, there's pressure. People are, like, looking at the lift or the, and they're like, well, when is that going to open? And that's when you just sort of stand back and you're like, well, it's going to open when it opens. And that should be always the answer. But, you know, um, it's, it's never that cut and dry. Mm -hmm. Once it's been controlled, it's been skied a lot and you know, you don't have a deeper instability or something that you're really unsure about. And you're mostly worried about a storm, type instability then things become much more straightforward mm -hmm. and uh you know you've been doing it for a while the terrain's been open um it's been closed now because there's a storm you have gates um and that's what we use in the wasatch a lot and and most ski areas that have avalanche problems is they have their primary terrain which they open up pretty quickly um, it gets skied hard it's got uh, less consequential um, terrain features in it and then you've got your more complex terrain which is where people like to ski you know really really want to I mean it's where as a powder skier or as a skier you're like well I want to go there mm -hmm. um, and that's where we send out our control teams and and we just do the best we can you know it's based on a plan making it um, given the people that are on site the power and the ability to make all the calls you know being a guy on the other side of the mountain saying oh that should be open isn't going to work that's the guys that are actually guys and gals that are out there doing it um and you know we, most people always go back to the same area that they were during at least at snow basin you know some areas it's like that's your route for the year that's how you do it i don't know that, if that's how you guys did it at solitude um, yeah, for the most part. And that's what we mostly do. Uh, but we've got a lot of terrain and we like to let people learn and, and mix it up. So what we are trying to do and what we have done is we sort of stick to a storm cycle. We'll stay in that area during that storm cycle. And so people become familiar with what's been going on. They've been passed on information from before and uh, they mitigate the hazard. And um, 
then they're able to learn the intricacies of other routes, right. other terrain. Which makes it, yeah, you know, and, and there's pluses and minuses, you know. Some people that go into one route and that's all they do, um, they might always say, that's where I throw my shots when this happens. And, yeah, that works 99% of the time. But there could be that time where a fresh set of eyes will do something different and be like, oh, my, look at that. that I just got that to rip out. And, and uh, that's good to have others, I think, on routes. Sure. But, yeah, back to your question, you know, how do you make – how do you open terrain – um, effectively, you know, it's, uh, it, it all depends on the time of year, how much it's been skied and what the avalanche problem is of the day or the cycle. Right. You know, um, it's, 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 it can be stressful and it can also be a lot of fun. You know, sometimes there's not much hazard and you're testing it and then, and skiing which is what we all want to do. So Hans, uh, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about ski patrolling in New Zealand and the snowpack in New Zealand. And Yeah, I worked, um, a lot of people think of New Zealand and they only think about the South Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fortunate enough in some ways to get steered to the North Island because that's where our exchange was. And it's a super maritime snowpack i mean it there's some rain (laughs) but uh yeah it's uh but when it gets snow it can get huge snows and there's a lot of wind and basically most of the skiing um on the north islands on volcanoes there's two of them taranaki has a small ski club and mount ruapehu has three ski areas um two commercial larger ski areas and then one small club field Mm-hmm. Um, and there it's, um, uh, emulsive explosives, uh, on string for basically all your shots cause stuff can slide. And, uh, can you explain what that is just for folks that don't know? Um, well, there's a few different types of explosives, um, that are used in avalanche control and it, there's a penalite, um, style that's used mostly in the Wasatch and Continental snowpack, snowpack which is a faster, uh, explosive. And then there's sort of a emulsive style. I don't know exactly what the explosive is, um, but the bang, shall we say, is a slower. And it's sort of like explained to me as more of a push. Mm-hmm. Um, Tahoe ski areas and places in the Northwest, they use more of a, a emulsive. Um, there's also ampho which is a sort of a similar thing. And when I first started, we actually mixed our own Ampho in the milk jugs and then uh, put our debt in there. And it's a dirtier, smellier thing. Um, but what we got was more like tubes of, of m- malleable explosive, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we use mostly in New Zealand. And then I, when I worked there, I, was, I did some snow safety work and forecasting, and I convinced... Um, our management at the time to get an avalancher to shoot up our, cause we had about a thousand vertical, um, hanging above our ski area and it didn't run very often, but when it did, it ran huge. And we did a lot of, um, heli bombing when we got big, big storms. And, um, unfortunately the timing of that 
is basically the weather's got to be good to be able to get explosives out the, the door to, to make the bang. Um, and we had some large 3.54 D uh, scale avalanches. There's one that's on YouTube that you can see. And we, we would get big, big snows sometimes and uh, a lot of wind. Yeah. And so that was sort of the problem that we were dealing with was heavier snow with a lot of wind. And so that emulsion explosive, that's just, it's better for a more dense, uh, higher water content snowpack. Yeah, exactly. So, so you talked about bringing in the tool of an avalancher so that you could shoot it, say, when you couldn't fly the heli to control that, that area above the ski resort. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, we, there was many days that I would go out with the cat. The lifts weren't running because they'd been uh, rhymed up too much. And I'd go on my route and would be up into this massive bowl. And it just seemed uh, crazy. You know, you're putting shots out. And you don't have really safe zones. And uh, you're trying to get stuff, um, you know, controlled, mitigated, whatever you want to call it. But you're putting yourself at risk a lot of the time doing that kind of work. And so um, that's what why the avalanche came in. Sure. So Hans, I want to hear about um, your experience in Gulmarg in India. What was that like? When were you there? Who were you working with? And what were the ins and outs of forecasting over there? Well, it all goes back to uh, Jay Bristow, a good friend of mine. Good friend of yours. He uh, he got approached. He was like looking when he was working in uh, he was working in Porters in New Zealand, and uh, he was going online and looking for jobs. And he there was this guy in uh, India that wanted to put together a snow safety team, or he wanted someone to be that snow safety officer. And he got in touch with Jay, and Jay, uh, I remember he talk to me about it and i'm like you gotta go and people th- it's crazy it's in cashmere i mean what are you gonna do up there i mean no it doesn't work and and he was intrigued and i got intrigued i was like you gotta go i mean this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity and i think in the meantime is when he got his um it was his first year working at the rubies or second and he's just like i can't commit to the season i've, I've got this commitment with uh Ruby mountain heli ski and joe royer and i just you know, I want to make it happen, but I just can't. And uh, I don't know how it came up, but uh, yeah, well, the guy actually started calling for Jay, couldn't find him. And uh, I think Jay was on some tropical vacation and I happened to get involved. And the guy called me. Um, he was an Australian guy and he was actually trying to just sell skiing and he just wanted to make sure that it was safe there. And they'd had some pretty big avalanches. Um, and I pitched this idea. How about you split the snow safety job into like a two or three stint thing? And uh, and he went for it. He's like, well, I can make that happen. And so Jay working, his season started mid-January. And then we... Uh, Got Jimmy Roberts from Sugar Bowl involved, snow safety guy there for many years. And uh, then there was me. And so we, Jay 
had to go early. Jimmy went for the second part, and then I went for the third part of the season. And so our plan was to overlap and just pass on the information that we'd had. And it was, uh, you know, it was a fly-by-night operation and the fact that none of us had been there before. We we knew we were going to the Himalaya. They had just put in this lift that was, at the time, I think the highest lift in the world. It went up to 13-something thousand feet, and it was just all avalanche terrain. I mean, you just look at it. The first third of it is mellow, and then the rest of it's just like, yeah, there's that's it, you know, and then these paths ran miles. Um, and, and so were they already in operation when you guys went over there? They, they had had, they had been in operation one the year before and they had an Australian guy that was running it and he was a ski patroller. Um, good on him for taking it on, but it was sort of past his experience, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, he just wasn't equipped to, to deal with it. And <laughs> I mean, either were we really, you know, we had all worked at ski resorts. We'd done our share of backcountry skiing. We'd done a lot of control work. Um, you know, in the case of Jimmy, he'd, you know, he's part of the snow safety. I think at the time he was the snow safety director. All the rest of us were, you know, we were part of snow safety teams, but we hadn't been in charge. Mm-hmm. And there we were getting, um, getting our, our chance. But uh, one thing that most ski areas have to test the snow is explosives. We didn't have that. No explosives. No explosives. No mitigation tools. Cornice cutting. Ski cutting. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so Jay, I think he was lucky. None of the guests really had showed up. And, you know, he's, he can tell you the story better than I can, but I think he was just powder skiing. Like a, like he showed up, there was no snow and then it just started snowing. And then he was just like wild man on steroids. There was no one skiing and it was him. And, uh, he was just laughing and he passed on the torch to Jimmy and then Jimmy got, you know, the skier started showing up, but this isn't like skiers. Like we think about this is like 40 people, you know, and the terrain I could easily say that it was with very little effort, you're skiing over 3,000 acres, maybe 4,000. Um, the, the main terrain was maybe 1,400, 1,500 acres, but it was bowl after bowl after bowl, north and south or east and west of the actual terrain on a huge ridgeline. And so Jimmy did the best he could to, when it was a hazard, to shut the lifts because that's what you do. I mean, that's all you can do is just say, just keep it closed. And then when he opened it, he did a good job of trying to mark the boundary because they hadn't done that. And, uh, it, it wasn't known. It wasn't accepted. It was just, it's a new, you know, it just wasn't part of the culture there to have any type of signage. Mm. And so he did his best to do that. And then he got into a storm or they got into a storm cycle and people were just going out of bounds. And that's what they'd been doing, you know, um, on a much smaller scale on the lower mountain, which had been all they'd been skiing for like 20 years, but now they had the whole upper mountain. And so, um, there was a lot of human triggered avalanches. 
during that time that ran slide pass going for thousand vertical feet because the the way it worked there was um, the bowls on either side were bigger and more expansive than the main terrain and uh, as a skier if you like you just you look up the mountain you're like I want I want to go there that was the terrain that was just on the other side of the boundary mm. and um, he had unfortunate an unfortunate event that uh, some people went out of bounds and there was a death there in that terrain and then I came in um, a few weeks later and then got past the baton to run the run that snow safety program <laughs> and still still no mitigation no tools no tools I showed up and my luggage was lost um, so I didn't have skis or boots that bag of course the bag that really is going to get you somewhere on on, on a mountain um, that's the bag that got lost somewhere in Delhi airport and so I went to the local uh, ski shop which had ancient gear uh, some Solomon rear entries so I threw on those and then uh, one of the ski guides quote unquote gave me a pair of Seth pistols I think it was and I did my first ever ski uh, on the mountain and uh, I kicked off a size D3 um, with two Indian guys um, yeah it was it, totally crazy totally crazy and I realized that I was really in trouble because I thought they understood what I was saying because they said, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And they would say, mister, to your name. And, oh, yes, Mr. Hunt, sir. And, uh, yeah, they had no idea what I was saying. Was that a yeah, sure, or <laughs> yes, sir? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you show up there, you get to the top of the top of the lift. What do you see? Uh, you see... Right behind you and near you, you've got peaks that are up to 16,000 foot. Um, see a lot of incredible, beautiful ski <laughs> slash avalanche terrain. I mean, it's all avalanche terrain. It's all bowls that just, they're made to avalanche. They're created. Um, yeah, they're perfect. You know, 38, 40 degrees, big cornices on them. And then right on the other side, you see a line. And it's the line of control. And on the other side of that is the Pakistani army um, that is looking at the Indian army, which had little forts on the ridgeline um, looking back. And so it was a wild place to, to ski, to work, to be a part of, to try and enforce some type of avalanche decorum to the guests that were out there and who owned the ski area uh, so the ski area was a mixture of different entities so there was the cable car company that was sort of responsible for the lifts and then there was the tourist department that was responsible for the tourism in the, in the region and then there was the police, and they all had their sort of piece of the pie there at the ski resort. And so the way it worked was each bureaucratic bureaucratic entity had ski patrollers that were assigned to their 
bureaucracies. So there was a few guys from the police, a few guys from the cable company, cable car company, and a few guys from the tourism part of things. And they all worked together. Um, and so that was the ski patrol that we dealt with there. Um, so, so what level of training did the ski patrol have when you, when you arrived there? Well, Jay and Jimmy both tried to get them up to a certain speed. They had first aid skills, which had been um, taught to them by the Australian that had been there. And uh, so they were, they were comfortable on, you know, what I would consider sort of intermediate terrain, but the higher angle, steeper stuff, they were definitely not uh, ready for. But, you know, they, the tr we tried to, you know, it was on the job training is totally what it was. So how about avalanche rescue skills? Were they equipped with beacon shovel probe? And yep, they had the gear, and they, they were on the yeah, Share program. Uh, right. And were you guys teaching them to ski cut? Yeah, that was, you know, that was, we, we had a cornice up top, a cornice line. And so we were teaching them how to kick off blocks, and we had a, big cornice cutter like made that was sort of like a massive sh pizza pizza peel yeah and we'd be on belay and we'd try and peel that off and then uh, i mean our our technique was was time you know because the snowpack i was dealing with was um there was there was an underlying deep layer instability that was when I first got there, it was probably three, three and a half, four feet in and uh, deep. And, uh, you know, it was like, if we don't get more snow, is it going to be heat that's going to react this? I mean, this is going through my mind at the time. What is it going to be that's going to get this to go? Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm digressing, but ultimately I got involved in a three, another three-foot storm cycle that made everything go. And then I felt really good about the snow after that. Everything kind of flushed out. It all flushed out. Everything that was going to go, it got so much weight on it. And uh, um, I waited a little bit and then started skiing again. Certainly a time to take a pretty conservative approach, I would think. Yeah, um, I'd been doing some avalanche forecasting in New Zealand. And uh, I had never written a, a, an extreme forecast before, but it was obvious that, that we were under extreme conditions during one of the periods of time that I was there. And uh, I would I would write a forecast, and, and you know this is very spotty internet at the time, so I would actually post it at the bottom of the gondola. Mm. I was lucky enough to stay at a hotel. They they got us sorted uh, with our accommodation. And it snowed, and it didn't stop snowing. And uh, everything went. You know, everything that had been skied the whole season um, went. I think uh, the crown was three and a half, four feet to that unstable layer. Um, maybe a little bit deeper in spots, obviously, and shallower in others. But every single bowl, I mean, when I woke up after the storm and looked up, I just saw just crown after crown after crown after crown and uh maybe happy 
<laughs> you know, I wasn't happy to see that the terrain that had been skied all season uh, slid. But then again, I mean, it slid. So I was, you know, I was psyched to know that I didn't have to tiptoe around it anymore. Mm. You know, it was, it had done its thing. The cycle had gone through and uh, then it was time to, to go skiing. What sort of a water content are you dealing with in, in like a big storm there? I was, I was there just for a small period of time, but I was blown away how similar it was to my experience in the Wasatch. Mm. At that time, I'd been in the Wasatch for about uh, eight seasons, nine seasons. And um, it was, you know, I, I don't work right now in the Cottonwoods. I work at Snow Basin. and We're used to seven, eight percent snow, which is really, really good skiing. Um, and that's what it seemed to be there, mm-hmm. you know, when I was there. Uh, and, you know, it's it's further south. It's really high. It's sort of the foothills of Himalaya there. Um, and um, from my understanding from the locals out, the snow that we I was experienced was, was normal snow. Sure. So how did the program grow? So, so you spent one stint there. One stint there. And then I know, you know, Brian Newman took over the program. Was that directly after you guys were there? Yeah, the plan was to continue that and try and do it. We, we had a pretty good time and we were trying to um, get explosives and talk to the army. And we sort of created a relationship with the army, which was they had a base right there. And we were hoping to use some of their explosives. Um, and that was the plan was the same group was going to go back the next year, um, who was going to be beneficial to them. And then it was also going to be beneficial, obviously to us, because we were going to go back to where we'd been. I think for their, on their, from their perspective, it would be better if it was one person, obviously. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Um, Brian stepped up and said he would go. And so all of us were deep in our own programs back in our, you know, in in the Rubies and California here in the Wasatch. And I think none of our perspective or our, our, um, bosses really wanted us to do the same thing. And, uh, and Brian was like, I'll just go for the season. And that really ended up being many seasons. Mm -hmm. And he did an incredible job there. He got uh, explosives, created a relationship with uh, the uh, military, and then he sort of created a, an assistant position and got people to come in and uh, help him out. Right. That sounds, sounds like an interesting experience. I'm sure it was challenging and exciting. And what was the skier population like there? Uh there was a, when I was there, there was a lot of the most, um, the population of skiers was mostly Russian. Mm. Um, and then there was, you know, a splattering of French people and Scandinavians and a few Americans there, um, a few Canadians. And then of course there was, um, a big portion of Kiwis as well. Mm. And uh, it seemed like, you know, uh, more Kiwis than you would expect. Right. They seemed to have figured it out and found it. 
any locals skiing and learning they, learning the terrain? Or? They had a few local guides, uh, but in general, it was above their ability. But uh, they had some guys that were that had grown up there, and a few of them were were guiding people, but they really didn't have the this experience yet to be doing much backcountry skiing. But uh, I, w- I will say the biggest day I ever saw there was uh, 114 people skiing. Was that was our, our biggest ski day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a place that's worth checking out. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a place to, to go see. I mean, it's, it's big mountains, big skiing. Uh, but, you know, the political, the climate there right now, I don't know how excited I'd be, especially with a family to go, you know, it's good, you know, being on the other side of it, it just, it's just amazing and crazy to me to think that we did it with, or we tried to, oh, we didn't have explosives, you know, it was a backcountry operation. So our only way of keeping it safe was by closing it. And that the Indian uh, contingent that worked there, they didn't mind. They're just like, yeah, we're here. This is this is this is it. But in some ways, my expectation was that you know I'm working for these guys. I wanna, I wanna do a good job. I wanna open up the terrain when I can, and uh, without explosives, it was it was good just to say it's closed to public, but able to go out there and and, and ski the ridges and stick to the ridges and then just. S- be in some incredible terrain mm. that's good you know i i got my perception of it and if you get a chance to talk to some of the other guys that were there um you know jimmy jimmy's definitely got a story to tell yeah sure and then newman had years there afterwards right. and that whole progression for him to create that relationship with the, the government to get the explosives in the military and um yeah the, my understanding is you know he was using c4 plastic explosive i don't know how many people could to use that for uh avalanche control and uh but yeah but he, he did and, you know that was that that changes the game right you know when you have an actual explosive that you can test and um you know test your forecast maybe not make it safe but make understand what's going on there hans when have you been surprised the most in avalanche train i guess it shouldn't be when i'm surprised the most but i think it's happened to me three times and each time i knew there was instability there and i uh, was using explosives and got deep in a route and basically everything around me there it was later in the day when everybody's talking to each other oh yeah i'm not seeing much not seeing much and I think there was that uh, just sort of like positive feedback loop. Oh, it's fine. You know, we're not seeing much. It's all good. And, uh, you know, the last shot I've seen go three feet deep and, yeah, destructive, you know, D two and a half. Um, that was in New Zealand once. I was with a guy from Sunshine Village and, we were just talking about it and I was just like, Oh yeah, it seems fine. And he's like, I think I'll throw another shot. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, it's fine. 
And uh, yeah, the whole amphitheater went. And I was like, oh, yep. That was, that was once. And then, um, yeah, it happened to me at Snow Basin a few times. What do you attribute that to? In the morning, you think it's unstable. You've got a plan. And then at that point, you're more proving that it's stable than thinking that it's unstable, I think, mm. if that makes any sense. So you're getting kind of false stable results. Yeah. You're just, you're just like, yeah, I've thrown a lot of shots and everything. You know, there was no natural activity. Um, the people around me are reporting that, you know, it's pretty benign on their routes. And uh, But we knew, you know, that there was the potential for, you know, it's not just a regular day out there, but it mm-hmm. seemed like it was turning into a regular day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hitting the, you know, the sweet spot or the hitting the spot or the spots that are, are, are going to trigger the, the area. Right. Spatial variability. Exactly. Is there's a reason why the older guys that are doing it are throwing the more, sh- more shots. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been surprised more. You know, they're less cavalier. Um, Yeah, if you get surprised once and you're on top of it looking down, you know, that's where you want to be. You don't want to be the guy on the other side saying, oh, yeah, it's sweet, I'll just ski it. And then you hit that spot. You know, it could be that one time out of 20. It could be that one time out of Mm 1,000. But uh, if you think it's unstable and everything's pointing that way, there's no reason to go hit the middle of something. Um, you know, come back tomorrow. Take another, do it two days later. You know, it's you've got, you always have that chance to come back. But if you decided to go then, there is there is no coming back. You know, it's like you've rolled the dice. And What advice do you give to your rookie patrollers going out on control routes? For the first time. That's a good one. It's, they should, and they have the ability to just call bullshit. I like to communicate, uh, going up the lift, you're having that discussion. This is what we're going to see. I hope this is what I think we're going to see. This is where I want you to be. We're going to stay super safe. We're going to stick on the ridge. Um, it's all about communication and it's all about empowering the rookie and just saying, hey, if you don't understand what's going on, tell me. Um, if you think what's going on is dangerous, tell me. Um, just don't think or assume that I know what's going through your brain. Because what I think is totally normal, you might and probably will think is a little bit strange. So we are going to stay safe and we're going to do it as um, effectively as possible. It's hard, you know. When you're out with a new rookie, um, it is sometimes a backcountry snowpack. You know, there's a lot of instabilities out there. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble at the beginning of the season, and especially at the beginning with a new person. You hope that their rescue skills are good, um, but you're not sure. I mean, yeah, you've tested it. You've done your beacon drills, but it's usually on a flatter piece of terrain. Um it's a, it's a really dangerous time, 
you know, and it's, it's that time that you have to put in good habits. Hans, any close calls in the back country that you've had or uh, there's been, yeah, a few, few, there's been one close call. Um, and just skiing solo in the back country when I'm fairly confident on the snowpack or I, I'm yeah, fairly confident, but I'm still going out there solo. You know, I think a lot of people like to do that. Um, day off enjoying themselves and, uh, not having a partner, but saying, I'm going to stick to mellow terrain, you know, and having a good day, but deciding to go, Oh, you know what? I'll just dip into here. I've had such a good day, but I'm going to do this. Wow. It's a little steeper. It's a little more fun. And, uh, yeah, I knew that there was a buried surface hoar layer, um, and I'd seen that it was reactive in steeper terrain that I was deciding to go into. But uh, I decided at that time that it was fine. Made three turns, maybe four, and noticed that it was snow was moving, and so I I skied to a tree. You know, it was soft, it was not very deep, and it washed over me. Um, but, yeah, the, the classic, just overconfident, just wanting to get those turns, skiing. I really, I mean, the powder skiing so good, just like, you know, so good. <laughs> and just letting that feeling of euphoria or wanting to get it just taking over and I got surprised and it was um it was a sort of a watershed moment yeah you know did your mindset change after that yes I just say that if I thought it could in the morning there's no reason why I should think in the afternoon that it still can't, you know, it's like you've already made up your mind that it's unstable here, here, and here. Don't, you know, you're pushing it you're, you're doing fine. And then you push it the last run or, and that's just, yeah. I mean, I want to keep skiing. I want to, I love powder skiing. I want to keep doing it the rest of my life. And Yeah what's wrong with skiing a little bit less of an angle for an extra two days, you know, I mean, you can always get after it later or, you know, some years you want, might never get to ski those lines that you really want to get, but it's a, it's a seasonal thing. And that's the beauty of it. It's like if every season and every storm was the same, um, you'd get bored. At least I would, I'd get bored. You know, I like, the dynamics of skiing, how it changes from day to day. Um, and just realizing that, uh, to trust, to trust yourself and to trust the forecast. Cause you know, the forecast was talking about that too. You know, I, I, I should, I should know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people like when that happens to them, they're going, Yeah. I, I knew, <laughs> you know, but there's other people that, you know, they get out there and they don't, they have, they're blissfully ignorant for years and years and years. Yeah. It's a game of patience, isn't it? Yeah. 
It's um, got to play the long game. Yeah, I want to play the longest game. You know, because you love skiing. Yeah, I mean, we all do. That's what we do. It. You know, if it wasn't fun, why? Why do it? Right. And you know that. I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, we all feel that. Being out in the wilderness, being on a mountain, looking down, and then just making making turns. They don't have to be like over the head. They don't have to be steep. I mean, they're great when they are. <laughs> well, Hans, thanks for sitting down with us tonight and and uh, having a beer and and chatting about avalanches. Yeah. You're welcome. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Cheers. It's cool. Thanks for your time, Hans. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. Can't wait for the next time we get to hang and ski. As our seasons are changing, go check out some of the great end-of-season deals on winter equipment at www.blackdiamondequipment.com. They've got you covered on literally everything you need for four-season adventures, from ski gear to climbing gear, tents, packs, trekking poles, headlamps, lanterns, and a ton of kick-ass soft goods. Check it out. Get your gear. Get outside. Thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond Peeps, and of course, 10 Barrel Brewing. Music today was performed by Grammatic, made possible by the permission of the artist. As always, we appreciate the beats. Check out more of their tracks from a link on my website. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. If you need logo or artwork, he's the best. Check his other work out at MikeT.com. That's MikeTEA.com. Tune in next time, sometime around the middle of May, for our last episode of the season, featuring John Lemnotis as he shares a harrowing story about a late-season avalanche in the front range of Colorado. Speaking of Colorado, I'm coming for you. I'll be working up a fall tour that will be coming through Colorado in October. I'm looking to link up with anyone with an educational story of a close call or accident or any other avalanche professional that wants to chat about their experiences, views, and their take on current issues in the snow and avalanche world. Hit me up. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.